Everybody wants to be happy. But what is happiness? And maybe the bigger question, where do we find it? Today we'll discuss those questions and more with Paul George. Paul is the author of a new book, Rethink Happiness, Dare to Embrace God, and Experience True Joy. I'm Father Dave Pavanka, president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka, president of Franciscan University, and we're talking about rethinking happiness. I'm joined by our panelist, Dr. Regis Martin, a professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan University. We are pleased to welcome our guest, Mr. Paul George. Paul is the author of the book, Rethinking Happiness, and Paul has been a friend of mine for a long time. So it's really great to have you here, Paul. We appreciate you taking the time. So basically, the first question, why do you write a book on happiness? <laughs> You're just going to jump right into yeah, it. Yeah, why? I mean, is there something else you want to talk about? I, you know, people have asked me that question, why did I write a book on happiness? I think the book was written inside of me, in a sense of this deep search inside of my heart and probably all of ours and all of our listeners, this quest for joy, for happiness, that's in our DNA, it's in our soul. And so for me, it was just like, let, let me begin to kind of answer some of the questions that people are asking me that I'm already asking myself and wanting the answers for them. We've got the, the culture kind of talks about happiness. It's like, I don't know, you just have this image of laughing all the time and a party and all that. Is that exactly what happiness is? It's sort of like the culture has made the term happiness sort of this contemporary term, like it's a new sort of hip term, but happiness is, goes back ancient, right? Uh, this quest, Augustine talked about it, uh, popes and saints have talked about happiness, and some people like to separate happiness and joy. To me, they're the same. It's this, this longing to search for real deep peace, yeah. uh, joy, happiness, and yeah. it, it, it's built inside of us. Yeah. C.S. Uh, Lewis has a, a fascinating insight uh, into the mystery of, of joy in his autobiography surprised by joy, and he sharply distinguishes between pleasure, which you can very often procure, you pay for it, right. happiness, uh, you know, like a good cup of coffee makes me happy, but joy is something you can't buy, uh, you, can't, uh, uh, you can't generate, but you can receive it. Right. it. You're ambushed, surprised by joy. So is that the kind of happiness that you're talking about? Exactly. So the title of the book is Rethink Happiness dare to embrace God and experience true joy. So it takes this, this, this quest that people say of happiness and brings us to joy. But the word rethink, I think, is important in our discussion because um, Pope Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, wrote uh, something to catechists, and he said the word conversion, metanoia, which we all know, uh, when it's translated, one of the translations means to rethink. And part of the idea of conversion is rethinking, why am I here? What's my purpose in life? Am I happy? Why am I not? What is joy? What is peace? People are already asking these questions in their, in their heart. 
not necessarily finding the answers, right? They're paying for the pleasure or their immediate successes or comforts, but not necessarily the fullness of joy uh, that, that really uh, helps us to find the peace that we're looking for. The idea of happiness is also embedded in our own national tradition, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you know. But I think most people kind of draw in an individualism from our own founding that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is for me and for you. But what you were just pointing out from C.S. Lewis is that, you know, the pursuit of pleasure often leaves you jaded, if not addicted and burned out, you know. And so you can gain pleasure to achieve a certain degree of happiness, but it doesn't last and it certainly doesn't lead you to joy. But relationships do. I think that's the thing that we often miss out on in our country because everybody is sort of free in America, but our freedom is to kind of pursue whatever we want. And so we work together at a particular place to make money to go out and buy the things that I want, things that you want. And it isn't much of a unity that we have this pursuit of happiness, which leaves us mostly unhappy. It reminds me of a, a dog chasing his tail. He doesn't catch it, you know. In fact, uh, the only way to, to, to really achieve happiness and joy, I think, is to, is to focus on the primary relationship with God through Christ and then others as well. And then, as you say, it sneaks right up on you. Yeah, right? I think that's a good point. And you really talk about that in this book, this, this sense, maybe say more about it, that fact that we're all longing for happiness looking for it, looking in the wrong places at time, and that ultimately leads to a greater emptiness. Absolutely. I had this encounter uh, with the CEO of a company who called and needed to talk. I didn't know him. He just got my number from someone, so I show up at his office. Super successful, worldly, achieved all the things he wanted, and uh, he was really distraught about things in his life and decisions that he made, and we've all been there in some way. Um, And I said, well, what do you want more than anything? You have everything you need. And he looked at me and says, I want to be happy. I mean, that's, I mean, at the depths of his heart, he just wanted to be happy, right? And what was missing there was a relationship with the Lord, a relationship Yeah, with he Christ. wasn't talking about anything sensual or material, you know, the satisfaction of my immediate need. Uh, I need a cigar or I need a woman. Right. I mean, you can slake those desires and you're still empty, running on empty, and you have this desperate need and desire for more, but you can't quite identify what that is. But you certainly know the absence, and it's painful. Yeah, some people call it a God-shaped hole. I think in a lot of ways, that does a disservice to God. God (laughs) doesn't fill a hole like a little donut hole. You get it, and it's like, oh, it's big enough. No hole's big enough. I I call it a void. It's so deep, you know? And oftentimes, I think when we look at God, or people do, and at least in my conversations with people, is they kind of just look at it as like a piece to their life instead of the whole. Of their life. Right. The, the, the big, great God who loves us, who could fill the total void of our emptiness. Yeah. You know, that's what happiness is. And I think this, this searching for this happiness and not finding actually creates that void, becomes more apparent, and, and then it becomes almost frantic. You know, you do whatever yeah. you need to do to be able to satisfy that, and you continue to go down the wrong road, and it ultimately leads you worse than you were at the beginning. I mean, we've all been there in some way, shape, or form, with this superficial consolation of and if I just get this, that'll fill the void or the right, hole. Or, yeah. or I just do this, or if I get a promotion. Or yeah, or, you know, Pascal has a, a piercing line in, in the Ponsay. He says, man, unable to cure death, ignorance, wretchedness, has decided not to think about it. And so he's <laughs> distracted yeah. by distraction from distraction, and he keeps moving headlong in the direction of death. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what surprises him at the end. 
Because we can't save ourselves. Right. You know, so we've clarified one thing, just satisfying the pleasures of the body, the flesh, the passions and appetites won't leave us happy. You know, at the same time, we recognize that the soul is a higher principle than the body, intellect and will and all of that. But even the intellect, just trying to be right about God is not enough. You know, uh, the pursuit of truth is the pursuit of a person and not just propositions and doctrines, as important as those are, you know, to be right about God is not to be right in a right relationship with God. I mean, I'm married, but I spent, I wasted many time, many hours in my first 10 years <laughs> trying to prove to my wife that I was right, you know? <laughs> and then after so long, you begin to realize that being in right relationship is more important than proving that you're right. And the more you try to prove you're right, the less you end up in a right relationship. And so God wants to justify us through Christ. He wants to make us right, and he, he alone can do that right relationship mm -hmm. if we let him. And I think that is what you're kind of pointing at. Absolutely. 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 Is he's the one that's ultimately, you use the, the idea of hunger, that ultimately he's going to fill that hunger, satisfy that hunger. But in, in the people that you've worked with, and particularly you tell some beautiful stories in the book about that, how do, how do you help people identify that hunger? I mean, it's kind of, it's always there, but how do you identify that? How do you show that? How do you help somebody to come to discover that? What I've found is that I think people are already in tune with that hunger. You just have to kind of draw them into the conversation. They already know that they're searching and they're hungry for something. They're, they already know that they're asking the question, which is what I find when Pope Benedict talked about conversion, meaning to rethink, I, I think people are already thinking. They're not necessarily getting the answers to, right, the, right. to the questions in the right ways, but they're already thinking about life. and so pulling that out, right? Getting into those questions that they're already asking in the very natural sense of the way God created us to long for Him and to want Him and to find Him, right? And, and even in these preliminary stages, you're engaged in a kind of prayer uh, because uh, you're thinking about meaning and God's name is meaning, word, truth, wisdom. He's the ground of the universe of being. And so when you ponder and reflect on the meaning of life, you're really thinking about God, even Absolutely. if you don't yet have a name for Him. He's certainly thinking about you. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned people just stop thinking yeah. about the things that they can't, you know, solve for themselves. Yeah. But I think people are searching, they're thinking, you know, and that's, that is, in, in a sense, they're already on the road to conversion. They don't even know it. Yeah. They just haven't met the Lord, the, you know, the Jesus of Emmaus, you know, the Christ. Yeah, you know, I, somebody said uh, when he read about Chesterton's uh, uh, observation that a man pounding on the door of a brothel is really looking for God. Uh, the guy said, you know, he's three seconds away mm -hmm. from discovering God mm -hmm. if he'll just stop pounding and go elsewhere. Right. Maybe the chapel around the corner. But God's looking for him. Absolutely. You know, that helps us to distinguish two types of hunger or two ways of alleviating hunger, you know, because uh, you can be hungry and just satisfy it with fast food, and you can eat alone. You could even go out to a nice restaurant and have filet mignon, but eat alone. So it's that com combination of right relations and also right food. You know, I, I remember in Michigan being with a, an Italian family. I'm German, so we're over and done with dinner, you know. <laughs> this was lunch. This was a celebration. And I thought they were preparing dinner because they took an hour and a half to prepare a meal. And it only took us an hour to eat it. But it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. 
to see these Italians recognize the importance of how you satisfy hunger is through family, through relationships, through converse. It is so, it's communion right. with a small c, right, right, right. but it really is an archetype or a sign right. that points us to holy communion. So in, in inviting people to that, Paul, how, what's that step? How do you make that step from the fact that the world is never going to satisfy, maybe even say a word about that. The, what, what do we look to that try to satisfy that, but then bringing them to that understanding or that revelation? Well, I think conversion happens when we realize those things that we've been searching for don't satisfy us, right? And then the conversation begins of, well, what will? What does? What, what, what fills the infinite, the void? And that's when you, you bring up the kerygma, the, the word, the truth, and begin to talk about you know, and people aren't adverse to that when they understand that there's a God who wants to meet them right in their, in their hunger, you know, no matter what their sin is. Yeah. So really having that conversation. Well, is that how you fixed the CEO, his predicament? Yeah, it was. How did that turn out? It, it was really one of the, the most powerful moments no one has ever seen yeah, yeah, but yeah. me and him. Yeah, yeah. But I just asked him if he, if he had ever thought about God or asked God to come into the, his, his hurt and his pain in his heart, and he said, no. You know, he said, the last time I prayed, well, I was in second grade. It was the last time I remember ever praying. Right? Oh, I and I said, well, do you want to pray now? And I thought he was going to say, yeah, why don't you pray for me? And I was just, you know, we were sitting like in his office like this. So I was going to pray for him. And so I closed my eyes and I opened them and he was on his knees in his office. Wow. Yeah. And he got on his knees just yeah, yeah. Very naturally postured himself. He didn't, he, you know, and just asked the Lord to come and save him. And I just, I was just sitting there like, yeah. <laughs> go, go. <laughs> yeah, you're doing good. Yeah, yeah. He just cried it out and let the Lord. And it was really, it was those moments that. So all at once, all those years uh, since second grade dissolved. You know, that, that is a living image for me of two gestures that we find it difficult to do in our culture. Our culture is so externalistic. It's always looking for things. It's also egalitarian. We want to level the playing field, even with God. You know, but when you get down on your knees, you recognize that reality is hierarchical, but that hierarchy literally means sacred order and that we are not sacred yet. You know, well, we are in a way, but not like God is. Yeah, right. So on your knees, it's just a very logical posture. But the externalism is overcome by the interior ascent, which is what prayer is. Yeah. You know, it's going within, but it's also looking up and not just out. And so one thing that he did, you know, we're talking about it years later yeah. on the show, but it's also, I think, a sign that what we should continue to do, because you don't just ascend to a plateau. Each of us is challenged to continue ascending to God inside. You know, it's so easy to become a professor with a PhD in books. And so, you know, I don't need to go any higher. I need to go closer, you know, and higher up. I just think that's a beautiful image, though, when he comes to recognize there's something lacking and he wants to have that filled, he goes to his knees. Yeah. That, that this, this humility, this something greater, something bigger than I, and that's ultimately where he comes. I think that's, that's really beautiful. I didn't have to teach him to do that. Yeah, no, no, I think there's something, exactly. I think have you kept in touch? Uh, do you know where he is now? Is he a mystic? I, I, I kind of have a miracle about this. Maybe we could share in the next segment oh, because, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, it kind of continues. Yeah, it's really cool, though, but it, it, it takes that invitation and helping the individual discover that 
there is an emptiness to be able to name that that's not being satisfied. And then ultimately that we know, you know, the one who's able to satisfy that. That's great. Well, we have much more to talk about regarding happiness. So stay with us as Franciscan University Presents continues. Like St. Augustine, we are sometimes so tied to our earthly desires and our passions that we find in our day-to-day -day lives. And sometimes we don't want to leave those behind like St. Augustine did. He told the Lord he wasn't ready yet to leave them and follow him. But once we eventually come to that point of leaving those earthly desires behind and we find Christ and we lean more into him, we find that we are fully satisfied in the Lord and we don't need anything else to satisfy us. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. back to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about rethinking happiness with Mr. Paul George. It made me remember a story when I was a student here at Franciscan University. I had a project of writing a paper about happiness. And I shared with it that, uh, that when I was in high school, you'd go to a party, you'd have a good time, maybe drink too much, not that I would ever drink too much. Right, right. in high school. In high school, right. <laughs> Comment, Regis? <laughs> I, I think it would have to be edited. Okay, okay, that's great. That I, 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 what I wrote in the paper was that I thought I was happiness. And, and we would later study in philosophy that Aquinas would say that it's not a true happiness. It, it, just because you're laughing or you think you're enjoying something, if it's opposed to the Lord or if it's opposed to the teachings of Jesus, that ultimately it's not a true happiness. And, and my suspicion is in your writing the book, you found this, lots of stories like that. Absolutely. Um, and ultimately, there has to be an answer to the question. There has to be an end to the means. For us as Christians, we believe that the end is Christ, is Jesus, the one who comes to save us. He is our source of happiness. And in communion with Him, relationship with the Trinity, that's where we begin to find true happiness in our life, that joy and that peace yeah. that we long for. Yeah. I, I wonder how long you can keep that lie going, sustain that myth. The great mantra of the 1960s was, I'm stoned, therefore I exist. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, we know, I mean, that's ludicrous. I mean, these guys are, are either in prison or they're dead. Uh, so it's not a gateway uh, to liberation, even if you imagine that this chemical intoxication really makes you happy. Absolutely. You know, God does a, a thing with people who pursue counterfeit happiness. Paul describes it in Romans 1. Uh, where in verses 22, 24, and 26, the judgment of God is not sending lightning bolts, earthquakes, but God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up to lusts, to impurity, to unnatural passions, to all kinds of disorder. It shows us that there is an unholy trinity, money, sex, and power. And the pursuit of that counterfeit happiness 
I think in a certain sense can be an endless descent. Absolutely. And, it, and it, it's self-blinding, it's self-justifying, but in the process it's self-destructive. And so we are surrounded by perhaps more counterfeit forms of happiness. The need to rethink this is an imperative like never before, you know. And so getting it right is probably the single most important decision a person can make. You know, and usually you have to get it wrong, whether you're sure. coming out of high school and of rethinking course. happiness in a, a paper or whether you're in marriage and a year or two into it, you realize we were happier before we were married, you know. What do we have to do to break free? Yeah. Or, or a businessman or a doctor. I remember after one of the Super Bowls, actually, um, it was really a, a very poignant moment. The, I don't remember what uh, team he was on, but the day after the Super Bowl, of which was the culmination of all of his career, they won the Super Bowl. He woke up on Monday morning and said to himself, is this it? Yeah, right. Is yeah. this it? This, this profound void and emptiness that what he thought was ultimately going to set. My guess is the same thing that businessmen that you talked about, that same story, is that ultimately when you come to the reality and face the reality that there has to be something more than this, whatever this is, this is different for every person, whatever this is. But wasn't that sort of replicated in, in the story of Michael Jordan, uh, mm -hmm. who gave up basketball? And, and most people were just stunned. I mean, he's at the top of his game, making all this money. Right. It just wasn't fun anymore. Mm -hmm. It yeah. wasn't fulfilling. Yeah. Venerable Fulton Sheen kind of refers to this idea, and I talk about it, of destination happiness. I arrive at a certain right. point. That's key, Paul. And that will make me happy or bring me happiness. And, and in some sense, some of it is superficial, and it does. Like, oh, this was a great vacation, or this was a, a good accomplishment, or a Super Bowl ring, or whatever the case may be. And then the next day, it just kind of wears off. You're like, is that it? Like, is, is, that, right. is that all it is? Some people even do that in their marriages. They get married, and they're like, I thought this was going to make me happy. Is this it? This is hard work, yeah. right? The, the, this person <laughs> so I've heard. can't make me happy. They realize that, oh, another person can't make me happy, another individual, right? They have to begin to look at themselves. And uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, said that the greatest poverty is spiritual poverty. Right. Over anything else, it's the greatest sure. poverty. Just, if, if maybe just one second to build on that, Paul, because I think it's important. Um, when we place the burden on somebody else to make us happy, that's terribly unfair to them and ultimately destructive in relationships. So it's not just the fact of what it does to me, but it, what it does to the other as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, to paraphrase a meme, if you want an unhappy marriage, put yourself first. If you want a good marriage, put her first. If you want a great marriage, put God first. And that's sort of like the steep ascent that we had to learn, you know. But it's probably something that everybody has to learn. You know, Augustine, who was never married, in a certain sense, exhausted all the potential sources of happiness sure. until he was sort of out of gas, but then the grace came, you know. And the love of God over self but even more, the love of God to the contempt of self. That's what defines yeah. the city of sure, God, and that's sure. the source of happiness. And the love of neighbor as self, you love your neighbor as yourself, but you love your neighbor for the love of God. And so getting all of this right is something that constant, you always have to recalibrate because you don't reach that point of equilibrium where you can just put it in neutral and coast like you do through a car wash. I, I think most people though, uh, when they're forced to recalibrate, get another wife. Uh, or husband, and that is truly right. tragic. Yeah. They, they haven't been disillusioned in a healthy way. Uh, the realization that she can't make me happy, I can't make her happy, only God can gratify us because we have deep, infinite needs, and she's just finite. Absolutely. I think people who kind of 
get over that hump in marriage to a, a beautiful marriage, come to that realization of, you can't make me happy. Right. Yeah. I can't make you happy, but God can. And, and that should be liberating. very freeing. Yeah, that's liberating. It should it's be liberating. Yeah, it's it's St. Francis is when he hears the scriptures at the Port St. Uncle about sell everything you have and follow me. He rejoices and said, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I've longed for with all my heart. And, and to the degree that we each experience and find that, use the word metanoia, that, that we are turned towards the Lord. And ultimately, that's the only one that's going to satisfy us. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know Scott, ideas. that meme, uh, I just need to tell you this. Uh, yes. My wife sent it to me, and that was the first time I realized you had a Facebook. <laughs> and a following of, I don't know, five or six million Mayor people. Cole, uh, whatever. He has someone manage his Facebook. Yeah. Oh, oh, I saw it. Kimberly. Yes, <laughs> indeed. That's but this idea of, uh, of, of marriage, you know, that is the primary analogy for what our Lord wants to establish with us, you know. But I, I've already referred to this, you know, our marriage started off well, but then it went south, you know, and not just because I was going Catholic and she wasn't, but because we were just typical Americans, you know, mm -hmm. and, and now 40 years later, we can honestly say, you know, I, I believe her when she says that nobody has brought me more happiness and fulfillment than you, but I also know that nobody has made her more miserable sure, than me, sure. you know, and, and she has not made me miserable as much as I did her, but she has brought me, I think, exponentially greater happiness and fulfillment. We didn't know we could have this much fun and friendship. Mm -hmm. I never saw a married couple in growing up in Pittsburgh that, that did this. I now know couples that are in some ways further along than we are. But that is so much a model for what Christ wants from us. An intimacy, uh, a friendship, fun, but fun even in the midst of suffering. And sometimes fun especially through suffering, right, right. the cross, as it were. And not obviously being married, but being able to just take a look at this from a kid. Like I remember mom and dad sitting us around and they would say to us very clearly, we had our little family me meetings and mom and dad would say, the most important person in our life is Christ. Mm -hmm. And they would talk about that and they would witness to that about my mom's relationship with the Lord and my dad's relationship with the Lord. And then they would say, and next, it's one another. And then finally, it's you kids. You know, as a kid, I was thinking, third? Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. You don't even get a ribbon for third place. <laughs> and yet I understand now the greatest gift my mom and dad gave me was that, that they witnessed to me that the only way our family was going to be at happy and be at peace was if mom and dad's relationship with Christ was right. But that's the case for everybody. It is. Okay, yeah. so how does that happen? What does that look like? What does it look like? We use language like having a relationship with Christ. What does that look it's like? It's a good question. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times we just think, well, well, God just is a part of my life. I'll put it in cruise control. We realize no good relationship is good if you don't pay attention to it, if you don't invest in it, right? right? Marriages fail all the time because they don't invest in each other. They don't invest in time relationship with Christ is the same. Like it, it, it is, it is a, a joining together, but it's an investment in you're spending time together. You have to grow and pray and, and, and talk, you know? So when the CEO was praying, I didn't have to really even teach him how to pray. He just said, well, what do I say? I said, just talk from your heart. That's prayer. Yeah. He got on his knees and just started praying. Like, okay. wow. you know, so uh, what do you say to your spouse when you're sorry? I don't know. Just speak from your heart about how you're sorry. Or See, There's you know, not a script you guys it, read. <laughs> right, because yeah. the script doesn't work. <laughs> hey, honey, I'm really, it's like, you're not really sorry. Yeah, yeah. But, but it, it, it is that type of a relationship with the Lord. And, and even a companionable silence, because you're beyond words from time to time, uh, is, is part of the package. You sit quietly in front of the Lord. You don't have a whole lot to say. He already 
knows what's on your mind. Uh, and, and in that silence, you feel a kind of presence, a kind of warmth. Mm. Uh, you're special. He's come all the way from heaven to spend time with you. The mm. least you can do is pay attention. Yeah, um, one of the images I have with my family, my dad, we would fish together. And so when I met my wife and we were dating, got me, I'd go fishing with my dad and she says, you were gone all day fishing with your dad. What did y'all talk about? Right. I said, nothing. So you didn't talk? No, we just fished. We just rubbed shoulders in the boat. Yeah, yeah. We just fished yeah. in silence. She said, I said, I had the greatest time. Yeah. It, was a, it was a great fraternity. We're very great, simple. You know, yeah. like... And Guys and girls don't fish the same. They don't fish the same <laughs> way. Absolutely. But, but that companionship of just being in relationship, right. being together. I, mean, I think at the heart of that is, is being known. That there's something this, we've used the word conversion a couple of times. It's, it's that conversion, that being t- able to turn to the Lord and be known, to be seen, and to be vulnerable, and to be okay with that. And, and I think that's difficult for us sometimes. I think a lot of times people have a relationship with Jesus where they're kind of going steady. And when you see people who are going steady, they try to impress each other. You know, Jesus doesn't do it as much as we tend to. You know, we want to impress him. You know, and then you reach a level that goes beyond courtship to engagement and then beyond that to, to a covenant commitment. And I find that uh, time alone with our Lord is either best in silence or in writing. Because what I, what I often find is that um, when I'm alone with our Lord and I'm having trouble getting through, or he's having trouble getting through, it's usually because of fears, concerns, anxieties. And that's the last thing I'm aware of. Just of that, just of just normal life. Is that what you're talking about? Okay, okay. And and so you you can't bracket your life as you come to him. You have to bring all that you are and struggle with, you know. And what I find is that when you're conversing with him, you know, he's sort of asking me, what are you afraid of? You know, and at times I'm like, what am I afraid of? Well, it's this. Is that all? No, it's that. And then all of a sudden this list gets really long. And you, you, you don't hear a voice, but you get a sense that, you know, be not afraid. You, right. you understand why I keep saying that to the disciples, you right. know. Right. Don't be afraid. Cast these cares and anxieties upon me. But even that's tricky because you don't, you know, having a relationship with someone who looks like a wafer, you know, or someone who's a story on a page, it's, it really takes the supernatural gift of faith, but that faith has to grow because I have never found a time in my spiritual life where my relationship with Jesus is not, in, at least in part, a struggle. How does, so we've talked about prayer. Maybe real quickly, Paul, how do you start that? I mean, for some people, they hear that and, okay, fine, we need to pray, and life is busy, kids, family, work, all that. How, how do you just start? What, what's the advice you give to somebody? Okay, I, I've never prayed before. What's the first thing they need to do? Well, I mean, on a practical level, yeah, I yeah. think it's just carving out time. I think one of the best advice someone gave me when we first got married is have a date night regularly. Right. Right. So with the Lord is carve out time regularly. You know, look at your calendar. I mean, on a practical level, this is when I'm going to pray. Uh, and from a very natural level is how to pray is just talk from your heart, you know, like, like you're saying. When you're praying, it's like worries and fears, and just start with there and just be in conversation uh, with the Lord. Since so you mentioned like this courtship, you know, I think oftentimes in relationship with the Lord, it kind of stops because we're afraid to go beyond the courtship because the Lord's going to know our shame or our sin sure, and sure, our guilt. Sure. As if he doesn't know anyway. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. We'll be right back with more Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us.
One of my favorite saints is St. Therese of Lisieux. She's my confirmation saint. And she really um, just found true joy and happiness in her everyday tasks. Um, and I feel like as a student, that's really important, especially as young people, just to find true joy in all of our conversations with our peers, with our faculty advisors, things like that. Um, just really finding true joy and happiness within whatever we're doing in our daily life. You don't have to trade top flight academic programs for a passionately Catholic identity. You can have both. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll not only deepen your faith, you'll be prepared for real world success by dedicated professors for whom excellence isn't just a goal, but the standard. Ready to get started? Check out franciscan.edu. back and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents and we're coming to you from the Communication Arts Studio here on the campus of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Our students are doing a great job. They're operating the cameras and the equipment. Members of our theology faculty, Dr. Martin and Dr. Hahn, are guiding our discussion on rethinking happiness. Our guest this week is Mr. Paul George. Paul is a Catholic speaker. He does podcasts. He's an author. Father of five, right? Yes. Five. Five. That's what I said. <laughs> Four five. plus one. Four plus one. <laughs> I like how you call me Mr. I like that. Well, this is very, very official. <laughs> right. When I call you when we're not in front of a camera, it's not appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Friends for 25 years yeah, right away exactly. with that. No, it's <laughs> actually it, just in, in light of this, um, just the relationship. We've talked a lot about communion. Uh, I just think in my own life, the relationship that, that Paul, you and I have had has been a great sense of joy. You know, while we may not get to see each other a lot, there's there's something about having the Lord in the center of, of our lives that is has been a blessing, you know, for me personally. But this sense of of joy and happiness when we're together, is it's real. It's not just imaginary, but there's really something that's much deeper than, yeah, the surfacey happiness. So, I, yeah, that's a side note. But so... Um, We've talked a little bit about relationship with Jesus and, and how that brings us happiness, but one of the ways that we encounter Christ is, is in the church. So how do, you, how do you welcome people into and walk people into that, into experiencing the love of God, uh, the majesty of Him, the freedom that comes with Him in a relationship with the church? I think this is important for our theology and for being Catholic is that our relationship with the Lord is not just this vertical uh, relationship, it is, it is also horizontal. It is, it is communal. Uh, and this is also very natural. Studies show that there was one study that said that we're the sum of the five people we spend the most time with. I mean, community really forms us. Yeah. Uh, friendships, fellowship, it, it, is, it is what shapes us and molds us. You, you know, you, you lay with the dogs, you wake up with the fleas. I mean, you, you keep going on and on. That sounds and like think, a Louisiana It thing. is. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times, I think one of the, the failures in in our walk with Christ is that it, we're, we're alone in it. It's just, it's me and the Lord, and, and I'm self-interpreting everything, and I'm doing everything, and, and it just falls. It, 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 it just, it fails. Uh, it's hard enough as it is. That's why we need community, and this right. is the beauty right. of the church, the sacraments, the, the communion, the right. community. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, in my marriage, I, I often think that things are really good and I will interpret things as being really good. And then when I ask her, I get <laughs> that feedback. Was a mistake. You know? It's like, okay, well, there is that perspective too. And you have to walk back things. And I find that, you know, talking to the Lord is easier than hearing him tell you where you're not right. That's where I think, 
you know, reading the Gospels in His presence, mm-hmm. you know, and also hearing the Gospels in the church, in the liturgy, you know. This is what has been the occasion for conversion for countless saints over the ages. But, you know, it's also the need that we have as sinners, you know, just to continue to grow in grace. But if you don't mind, I would like to bring it back to the CEO. Because a couple of segments ago, we were talking about him getting down on his knees. Whatever became of him? Um, well, I, you know, I prayed, uh, you know, I kind of just, it was this weird meeting and it, it ended beautifully, but you don't really know where it's going to go from there. Right. And, uh, but I left and I just, I just told the Lord, I said, you know, if you, if you want me to be in touch with this guy, just make it happen. Well, time went off maybe a year, never got a call, never saw him. Uh, but I always kept that prayer out there and I would think about it. So one, one day I'm, I'm running through the airport and um, I'm in, in Houston. Um, I got the last flight home, you know, to connect. I missed that flight. I'm sleeping on the floor, right? <laughs> so I'm running through the airport. I get my on my connection flight. It's dark. Um, lights are off on the plane. I run. Uh, the woman's like, hey, one seat left. Just grab it. So I get on the plane. I sit down. And the plane's dark. And I go to turn on my light so I can see to put my bag down. I hit the light, and I look next to me, and he's sitting right so cool. there. That's, in the that's a mini miracle. And he looked at me, <laughs> and just like, you know, like, oh, whoa. And I was like, I, I don't know what to say. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, prayed so that we would run into each other again. Wow. And I said, how are you doing? And he says, you'll never believe this. And he reached into his bag, and he pulled a Bible out, and he says, since we met, I've been reading this every day. That's, a, that's wow. what he said. And he's not Catholic. You know, right. I think he's probably on his, a spiritual journey, but Definitely. but he has found at least um, yeah. some real nourishment, some real nourishment, a foundation. Yeah, I mean that's the self-revealing word. He, that's that's his intimacy with with God. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jesus speaking to him. Yeah, and I would say also that you mentioned this uh, saint Scott. That in many ways that's what we find most attractive about the saints is. Are, you know, they all, they all had struggles, they all had difficulties, they all had a cross, and yet there was a joy and happiness to them. I mean, it's one of the things that I think, I was, for me, Percy is, is most attractive about Francis, that he was able to embrace a leper with joy. He was able to embrace his brothers. You guys have a single spouse I get to yeah. live with, 12 <laughs> brothers whom I love yeah. most one of the time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but but the, doesn't that, the saints, they really provide us models of, of men and women who, who lived with a joy and lived with a passion. And we find that attractive, right? When, when we see somebody living like that, there's something attractive yeah, about that. It's very attractive. Is there a particular saint that speaks to you over the, over the years? You know, there are so many, and I mentioned some in the books. I mean, Francis is certainly one of them for That's me. That's the right answer. Uh, but Augustine, for me, because he exhausted all options. Yeah. It's sort of like what you said. And, and to the point where he had nothing left but God right. and realized that that was you know, what he had been searching for the whole time. Yeah. You know, so I kind of, yeah, there's just so many saints, yeah, but those are two for me that have been really important. And there. plus he had the unseen witness whom he tried to escape so often, his mother, St. Monica, who, you know, relentlessly prays for this guy, which argues to the importance of community. Uh, I, years ago, I read a book which I, I have found endlessly instructive by Father William Lynch called Christ and Apollo. And in the book, he asks the question, what is the deepest form of union you can imagine? And most people would say, oh, union with God. And he would say, no, I say the church. Because, because Christ and the church do not require us to let go of, take leave of those attachments 
those commitments and engagements which are already good, but which grace invites us to deepen, perfect. So the church is the body of Christ. This is where we encounter Christ, Absolutely. the extension of his body. The church is his bride. So you fall in love with her. I mean, Augustine said, when I start talking about her, I can't stop. Mm. I mean, I think Scott is like that with, with Kimberly. I hope I'm that way with Roseanne. Sure. Yeah, you just can't stop. You, you never come stop. to an end of that mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there is a kind of adolescent mentality that you can see in our teenagers when they were teenagers, but you can also see it in the spiritual life. You know, uh, I remember when my kids were becoming teenagers and I would play with them. They would always seem to kind of enjoy the time with Frisbee, you know, and they wanted time alone with me, which is awesome. But they thought they could do that even while they were resenting and picking fights with each other. You know, it's like, well, that's something different. Yeah. It's like, time out. It's not, we're in you know. This together. And so the communion of the family is sort of what the model is for God the Father. He's looking down at us, you know. And I remember Mother Angelica pointing out that you're not going to be happy in heaven if you hate half the people that are there, you know. <laughs> if you don't learn to love your enemy, if you don't learn to apologize and forgive, heaven will be hell for you, you know. And, and home, I think, is often the place where we learn those rudimentary principles of apologizing and not saying, I'm sorry you misunderstood me yet again, you know, de-weaponizing upon, and, and really saying from the heart. But watching ourselves in our kids growing up was also, for me, uh, a kind of an invitation to outgrow that adolescence, yeah. where it's me and Jesus, you know, but those other guys, you know, it's you and them, but it's not me and them, you know. And, and I also find that in the Eucharist. When you're in a, with a parish community and you gather together and, and you see people and faces that you have histories and stories with, there is, there is a coming together again in union. And when we think of the liturgy, the, the praying for one another and repenting of our sin as we move through this, uh, there, there's a grace and there's a, mm-hmm. an, an, an encounter with the Lord, with the Eucharist, obviously with the Word, but with one another that's essential. Absolutely. I, you know, I think so often people try to pull Christ apart from the church, like they're two separate things, right? right? And they're not, they're one and the same, right? We experience Christ in the church. And and when you find the church, you've come home. Uh, What's that line by Robert Frost? Home is the place where when you go there, they have to take you in. (laughs) I mean, the church is a mother and and she embraces us, that beautiful symbol of the colonnade by Bernini uh, that surrounds St. Peter's, uh, that bespeaks this marvelous symbolism of, of the outstretched arms of a mother who welcomes everybody. The, obviously, Eucharist is Thanksgiving. The nature of, of going and celebrating Eucharist is Thanksgiving. I listened to a talk one time, and the presenter was a Benedictine priest, and he was speaking about the relationship between Thanksgiving and happiness. And he said that he'd done all this research and study, and he said those people who are thankful are happy. And people say, well, of course, they're happy because... And he said, it's the thankfulness first. It's, it's not just because their life is good, so they're thankful. No, they're thankful. And I think there's something to that, that, that we recognize the blessings and the gifts that are all around us. And in faith, the Holy Spirit allows us to see that and be grateful for that. And to that end, our life is more happy. And that links with what you just said a minute ago, because Eucharist comes from Eucharistia, Thanksgiving. You know, and that gratitude, I, you know, when I get home, I'll ask Kimberly, tell me about your day. And I mean, we want to hear the bad as well as the good. But when we do dinner, we always have what we call the good things. All the kids know this and Mm -hmm. the grandkids now do it too. Because when you collect all of the good things for the day, you realize 
that even if they don't outnumber the bad things, they outweigh them, you know? They're, they're just an abiding sense of gratitude that needs to be renewed. I know for me, but also for us in a family, but in a parish, in a community as well. Yeah, I mean, what, is, what could be more depressing than to uh, uh, assemble the family around supper and everybody's dumping on you? <laughs> I mean, that's the last place you wanna have a hamburger. Right, but I do think there's a moral gravity in a family, at least in my home, when I'm the dad, where things can really go downward, yeah. uh, where the things that are weighing the most heavy are the things that you want to talk about, yeah. but you really need the discipline of putting them aside for your sake, but for everybody else's as well. When, when I find myself in spiritual desolation, just this emptiness, you know, where, is, <laughs> where are you, Jesus? I start writing things I'm grateful for. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a sense of worship. Absolutely. Lord, I thank Absolutely. you. Lord, and it's truth. It's, it, right. it's truth. It, and worship moves you past yourself Desolation is just looking inward, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just to say a word on that, Paul, because uh, again, you and I have known each other for a, lot, a long time and, and been able to journey through some of your difficulties. So just the fact that there's difficulties doesn't mean that um, you can't be happy. It also doesn't mean that you're always walking through a cemetery whistling, right? So there's some days are better than others and you navigate that. Well, I, I think, yeah, I mean, we also suffer sort of with this idealism. Like we want our life to be idealistic and perfect. Reality is, that's not true. Yeah. It never will be like? true. We're all imperfect. Life's difficult. Bad things happen. We will suffer. And you mentioned earlier, uh, in relationship with Christ, we can experience happiness and joy in suffering and in pain, right? And I, I think just that, that understanding of, oh, I don't have to have it all together. You know, um, my life isn't this perfect picture. Uh, it won't be perfect until I get to heaven. You know? So, I mean, Jesus tells us, look, I'm not going to take it away. I'm not going to anesthetize you, right. but I will walk with you. I'll enter into that suffering. And yet, isn't that, I mean, I, to degrees, I wouldn't say to degrees, but an individual who is experiencing suffering, experiencing pain, and there's still a joy about her yeah. and, and um, a sparkle in her eye, I mean, that's, that's miraculous. Yeah. You know, in a certain sense, seeing my mother pass away through stage four bone cancer five years ago, when she first realized what suffering she faced, it was not a happy thing. Yeah. You know, and then she got through it. And we were with her. And the compassion that we shared with her passion, you know, we saw a joy in her that we never thought we'd yeah, see. Yeah. She didn't think she'd ever feel. It was always on the other side of whatever cross she was called upon to carry. But in the process, we ended up united in love. I mean, it was not perfect, but it was so much more than we could imagine. But it was only through the school of suffering, watching God, the sculptor, kind of take the chisel of her pain, you know, and, and hammer away. And in the process, we experienced his, I mean, his intimacy, his presence. And uh, she testified to that to the very last breath. It's like, go figure. And my guess is the nursing staff and other people were able to recognize that and see that. And there's a witness in our ability to have joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, that is profoundly moving for the individual who gets to experience that. Great. Our next, uh, our panel will come together for our final thoughts on today's topic. So I just invite you to stay with us. Saints Cosmos and Damien are two of my favorite saints because they emulated the example of selfless care in their lives by providing free medical care to all of the people that they encountered on their travels and didn't accept any payments for it. 
And I think that's a really good example as a future physician myself because they were able to find true happiness in a way that really um, got away from the future or the past and they lived in the present moment. I think that uh, finding true happiness for me has been a lot about learning how to um, learn how to trust in God and place any issues to Him. It's, I mean, whenever you have something that is very unsettling, to just place it in His trust and um, and just know that He will take care of it for you. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. So, Regis, if you could start us off yeah, with your no, final thoughts. I'd be thoughts. glad to. Uh, Scott, uh, recounting your mother's last days, that was really quite moving. And it reminded me of, of something uh, Malcolm Muggeridge had said in the evening of his life. Uh, it was an interview. And he said, you know, when you come to the end of the road, the one thing uh, you remember as having taught you anything is suffering. You learn wisdom through agony, and, and God knows he had his own agonies. Uh, and, and I think it can be a school. It's instructive, like monastic life. It's a sort of novitiate for eternity. And you walk to Calvary through the cross. You can't circumvent it. You can't bypass the cross. But people want to do that. Uh, yesterday, or maybe it was a day before, I was stuck in traffic, and uh, I turned on NPR. That was my first mistake. <laughs> but this crazy woman was talking about her belief in reincarnation. She hopes to come back as a movie star. I was thinking, no, you'll come back as a potato or a caterpillar. But then she said, I have an avatar. I have a separate life, another life. I retreat into cyberspace 90 minutes every morning before my kids wake up because I can design a world that is absolutely perfect. It's paradise because it's all about me. I'm young, I'm beautiful, and I'm totally selfish. And what was really shocking was not so much that she would say that, but that the interviewer would applaud her and say, that's really neat, that's so cool <laughs> that you're thinking exclu exclusively about yourself. I mean, this is hell, but she doesn't yet know it. Yeah. Let, so, let's pray that she wakes up before say, yeah. that final fall into right. Gomorrah. Before she discards that. <laughs> yeah. Scott. That reminds me of a, a section of a book I did on the, on the Lamb's Supper. We're looking at Romans 1 and seeing how God gives them up to what they want and how they ultimately discover that they're being punished by God, but they're punished by pleasure and then addiction. And then the blindness that follows and the darkness and self-deception. You know, prayer is what brings us to happiness, even if we don't feel happy before or after. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the need to go back to the basics because in high school I learned ACTS, you know, the ABCs of prayer, adoration, you know, where you just focus upon how God excels all of creation. You just praise him because he is your prize, you know. And then confession. I have fallen short, you know, naturally, you know. When you have kids, you recognize who you are before God and how your kids fall flat, and I do too. And he's not out to get us, you know, like an interrogation of a, a criminal by a cop. He, he wants us to kind of just unburden ourselves with our failure. So adoration, confession, and then thanksgiving. 
I think it's helpful to thank God after we've confessed because it's not just for all of the good things, it's for the mercy and the medicine of mercy that heals me where I have really breached my relationship and compromised my trust with Him. And then finally, supplication. So adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, which we were taught is you're asking him for supplies. You know? <laughs> right. Supply me with this, that, sure, and the other thing sure. too. And you begin, to, you begin to sense that God wants to meet our needs more than we trust him to do so. Absolutely. He wants to take us places that are far greater than where we want to go. You know, But you have to work your way to that point of trust. And for me, it's never easy. You know. I I like to begin my prayer by confessing the real presence, but the virtual absence. That I'm here, but just barely. But you're here, and I'm grateful, you know. And so get through to me if you can. And and I I usually begin by just saying, it's always a struggle for me to connect with you because I'm distracted by 101 things. And other people will say other things, but that transparency has never seemed to offend God so much that He says, I'm out of here. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Paul. Uh, years ago, I was in Honduras uh, doing mission work, and I was meeting with Cardinal Oscar Rodriguez. It's a cardinal lives in Tegucigalpa, and we were doing mission work and meeting with him. And I said, Cardinal, how can we help you better serve the poor of your country? If you've ever been to the third world, right, your heart breaks for the poverty. It's a poverty unlike we we see on a daily basis um, here. And, and it was interesting what he said. He, he looked at me and he says, it's not the poor of my country that need the most help. He says, it's the wealthy. Mm-hmm. He says, because the poor know that they need God, but the wealthy don't always think that they do. Mm-hmm. And it really hit me that, uh, you know, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, like, that's where we all are. We're all broken. We're all um, sinful. And that's the meeting place of the Lord. Like, that's, that's where we meet Him. Mm-hmm. Uh, not run from him, not hide, uh, which we often want to do. Sure. But that's where we meet him. And the invitation, I think, really ultimately in the book is for people to meet Jesus right in that place, in that spiritual poverty. Right? Right. And ultimately, he's only the one that's going to be able to satisfy that. That's beautiful. Paul, I just want to thank you for being with us. Uh, we uh, w- want to make this available to you today that if you'd like to learn more about the topic, this handout, it's just an excerpt from your book. We'll make it available to you from Paul's book, Rethink Happiness. The handout is yours simply by going online to faithandreason.com or calling the number that you'll see on the screen in just a moment. Paul, I thank you for being with us and allowing us to think through this uh, gift that the Lord has given to us, the gift He desires to give us in happiness. I reflect on uh, now Saint John the 23rd, who said the surest sign of God's presence is is happiness. It's a joy that there's something profoundly attractive about that. And in all of the things that we've talked about, you use the big three, um, sex, money. Money, sex, and power. Power, not rock and roll. Not rock <laughs> sex, and roll. Sex, drugs, and rock okay. and roll. Okay. Okay. I forget what it was. <laughs> but, there, you know, in the, the reason we go after those things is because they're attractive. You know, again, to, to our somewhat warped mind, they're attractive, and, and we want that. And, and what I what I hope and I pray is that, first off, that I give witness to the faith, that, that people can look at our life and they can say, there's something attractive about the way he lives, or there's something attractive about the way she lives, so that when we as Christians and we as Catholics begin to give witness to a life of joy and a life of happiness that is more substantial than what the world is offering, 
then people are going to be able to come to us. And they'll, I, I recall I was on a relationship with a friend of mine. They said, how is it that you can always be so happy? And I joked, I said, well, I'm, I'm heavily medicated. But <laughs> that's, that's not what, right? It's, yeah. it's grace. It's the spirit of Jesus that's alive in me. And, and if, if we believe what we say we believe, that Jesus is risen from the dead, that he is all merciful, that he is all kind, that, that we encounter him in the Eucharist, we can receive him, um, that there is a life better and greater than... If we're living this, it seems to me that that would be profoundly attractive. And people would come to me and they say, "Let me, ha- I need what you have, right? And then evangelization becomes easy. So we just rejoice in that, and we're grateful for this. We want to just be able to invite people into this happiness that the Lord has for them. So we continue to pray for that, that you would know the peace and the grace and the happiness that comes with the relationship with Jesus. I'd also like to invite you to be a part of Franciscan University of Steubenville and join in our mission to educate, to evangelize, and to send forth joyful disciples, empowered by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could enroll in one of our education programs or get a degree here on campus or from one of our online programs. Or another way to connect to Franciscan University is through our life-changing summer conferences, which Paul has helped us with for 25 years now, uh, for both adults and young people. Or I'd like to invite you to travel with us in one of our pilgrimages. I believe, Scott, you're taking a pilgrimage to Roman Assisi. Right. Uh, I'll be leading a group to Oberammergau, the Passion Play, next fall. So I invite you to join us. It's a great opportunity to encounter the Lord in relationship with one another, but also in really, really holy sites. So I encourage, encourage you to go to faithandreason.com for today's handout and to watch past episodes of Franciscan University Presents. I'm sure they'll inspire you. We ask the Lord to pour His blessing and His grace upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-783-6357.